0: That's a stupid question, Andrew. Good start, thank you. I'll just adjust my midget-designed microphone stand here, and my music stand and so on. Chris Williams is shorter than he looks. <laughs> Do you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15? Mark chapter 15. Actually, I will stand up here. You brought Bibles? There's an awful lot of people with their arms folded just staring at me going, come on, entertain me. So I'm just going to ask you to find your Bibles, and that way I can identify the people who didn't bring them. Now we're going to read from Mark chapter 15, and um, it's just started raining as if to well it's actually you did well no prophetic words about rain or rivers or sunshine although did you notice at the very beginning of the first song chris williams was trying to teach it to us and he went the rain cup the sun cup did you notice that did anyone pick him up doing that i thought that was really funny i don't i thought you'd got away with it but i didn't um thought it was great so yeah that prophetic singing is not welcome around here but it is due to get better and i'm i'm with you this morning and with you tonight and i'm really in faith that god's going to speak to us about the wonder of god and the gospel and i want to talk about the cross this morning i want to talk about the cross of christ and to really earth what we've just been singing in some scripture that i trust is going to speak to us in a powerful way and i do i'm in faith for andy what andy just said to happen which is that the holy spirit will move among us and change some of us permanently with our understanding of what god has done for us in the cross charles spurgeon uh, one of the great preachers, theologians, teachers of ever, really, but certainly of the last couple of hundred years. This is a great quote. You have to be Victorian to connect with this. Um, so there's one or two of us who may be in that zone. Most of us won't, but Robert, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but I uh, want um, quote from Charles Spurgeon. It, it's the beard as well, Robert. It's just, you just have that Victorian panache. But um, but this is a compliment in the context, because this is the kind of quote that, you, again, it just... It, He uses the Victorian flowery imagery, but it's so earthed in scriptural revelation. And Spurgeon said this about the cross. He said, we must go at once to the cross, no matter how hard, how insensible, and how dead we may have become. Let's go again in all the rags and poverty and defilement of our natural condition. Let's clasp that cross. Let's look into those languid eyes. Let's bathe in that fountain filled with blood which a bit disgusting. This will bring us back to our first love. This will restore the simplicity of our faith and the tenderness of our heart. The more we dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard, the more noble our lives become. Nothing puts life into men like a dying saviour. And I really believe that. And I think the image is beautifully disgusting. Let's go and bathe in a fountain filled with blood. It's theatrical and bizarre. But his point is, if you stand at the foot of the cross and you metaphorically engage with, touch, drink from, bathe in, the reality of the crucified Saviour, nothing puts life into a dying man like that. And that's true whether you're unsaved or whether you're saved. If you imagine all of us here probably have come here because we follow Jesus. And if there's one or two who don't, I trust this will explain why we do as we look at it together. But, the, but Spurgeon's point is when you stand where you can almost hear the things that are said from the cross, nothing puts life into you, your life like that. If you're a dead person, you're a dying person, you feel you came this weekend even flickering embers in the fire of your faith. You just feel this is a struggle. This is hard. It's, I, I was building up to this. I was hoping for a shot in the arm and now it's raining. You you, know, you you know you people we think like that sometimes don't we have months we have weeks we have years even where we feel this is bleak this is this is the cold face no one said it would be like this i have been fighting with this issue for this many years and there doesn't seem to be any let up and at those times when we feel desperate in our faith we think where do i turn god's Are you going to fix the situation now? Because if not, I'm done. And at those points, Spurgeon says, nothing puts life back into you like a dying saviour, like standing again at the foot of the cross and just looking. And thinking and praying and remembering and listening to the cries of Calvary. So I'm going to suggest that in this chapter, Mark 15, we hear five things that the cross cries to us. And I trust, I know actually that God is going to breathe life back into some of us by encountering the dying saviour this morning. So I'm going to look at five things that Calvary cries in Mark chapter 15. Calvary cries silence. Calvary Christ substitution, Calvary Christ savagery, Calvary Christ shame, and Calvary Christ scripture. We're going to look at those five things together and see how it is that the cross of Christ shapes our lives and communicates the gospel to us. So, we're going to read from... Mark chapter 15, 1 to 5, and I've realised I've done something very stupid because I've expected there to be projected slides, but I didn't give them to the guys. So I'm going to need to borrow Andy's Bible because that's where I thought I was going to read them from. Sorry, <laughs> thank you very much. You see, now you can all laugh at me for being the guy who said, "Bring your Bible." You didn't even bring yours, but that's because I thought it would be on the screen, so I'm sorry about that. Mark 15, 1 to 5. Anna's, am I being heckled, Jerry? <laughs> 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 oh yeah, you are, just not me. Okay, let's read. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay that's why they didn't bring their bibles all right okay and as soon as it was morning the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and they bound jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. and Pilate asked him are you the king of the jews and he answered him you've said so that's miraculous isn't it how did they do that <laughs> that is very impressive well done you We've got the same version? We have, just about. You've got the NIV there? Yep, yep. Okay. Well, I'm on the ESV, but that's okay. So, okay, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. The first thing that Calvary cries to us very oddly is silence. When you read the account of the crucifixion, before you get struck by the blood and thunder and guts and gore, and the sacrifice even, the first thing that strikes you is the silence of the lamb. It's such a weird story from that angle. It's so strange that Jesus is being falsely accused of things and he knows he's been falsely accused and as these crimes that he's supposed to have committed get listed, he doesn't say anything. And Pilate says, "I've got the right to kill you or not. Why aren't you answering?" and he said he made no reply so that they were amazed. In fact, in this entire chapter, Jesus only says two things. In this chapter. He when they ask him if he's king of the Jews, he says, "You said it." And on the cross, with the sin of the world on his shoulders, he cries out in anguish to God at the end. But other than that, with all these accusations raining down on his head, he says nothing, and Pilate is amazed. And it's worth asking why that is, because that's very bizarre if you're innocent. Where I come from, if you're innocent and you get accused of something you didn't do, you protest your innocence loudly. Does anyone play the game Mafia? Anybody? Uh, some grins, yes, yes, I know the one. It's an outstanding game, and I found that Christians love it particularly because they're allowed to lie. That's what I've discovered is true. And in, in that, it's, it's a game, it's a kind of a murder game where some, you, one of you is a murderer and nobody knows who, and you end up killing people and have to pretend that it wasn't you. But when you get accused of, of being the murderer and you're innocent, you bluster and rant and get really annoyed and I start sweating and shouting and getting really furious because people have accused me of something I didn't do. That's normally what happens someone comes up and tells you that tells others that you did something that you didn't so an obvious camping analogy but let's say there's a smattering of tents in your area that's been kept awake by a snoring man andy johnson or not let's say that's that's where you are and somebody says it's you and you know that it wasn't. Now, how that's possible, I'm not really sure. But you, know, but, you know, there are people who say, I don't saw It wasn't me. It wasn't me. And if everybody starts going, do you know it was him. It was, it was. It was him. He was the one. And you realize that you go around breakfast and through this meeting, people are saying, that's the snoring bloke. Some of you don't even know him. And you're accusing him. You would protest your innocence loudly. you said, this is not fair. This is unrighteous. This is unjust. And you'd get on your high horse and bluster about it. I certainly would. Jesus doesn't do that at all. Jesus does the opposite. Jesus knows that he's innocent innocent, and he still accepts the accusation. And that's very strange because Jesus has the power with his words in this gospel to speak and storms go quiet. Jesus has the power in this gospel to raise the dead with a word. Lazarus, come. Be still. Effectively, shh. And a storm just goes dead quiet. And yet here, with the accusation of... Death sentence hanging over him, he says nothing at all. And I wondered if that was a Jack Bauer thing. When I first looked at it, I thought, oh, is this, you know, Jack Bauer in 24, when he's being, if you don't watch 24, any, yeah? no, you haven't lived, it's alright, um, you wouldn't be here if you hadn't, 24 is, um, a wonderful show about, um, and the, the Johnstons are addicted to it as much as I am and in that, Jack Bowers, the hero played by Kiefer Sutherland and he, when he often gets captured by the villains, or the terrorists, or whoever and when he's accused, and when they're trying to find out what he knows, he says nothing but the reason he says nothing, isn't because he's innocent, it's because he's actually guilty of what they think he's done, in other words, he's trying to kill them, or find them out and so he st- says nothing in defiance, he says, but if I don't open my mouth i can't be accused of anything so i won't speak and i wonder maybe maybe it's jesus in that kind of context but actually of course jesus isn't at all who the romans think he is jack bauer when he's being accused is exactly who the terrorists think he is but jesus isn't here they think that he's trying to start a popular revolution and he's not he's innocent of the things they've accused him of So it can't be just that. And in fact, what it is, is that when you look back 700 years, Isaiah had said, in Isaiah chapter 53, that he would go, the servant of God who would die for the sins of the world, would go to the cross like a lamb, silently being led to slaughter, and as a sheep that before its shearers doesn't say anything, so he won't open his mouth. And in fulfilment of that, Jesus goes, and he says nothing. Usually guilty people go to execution reluctantly, and they project all their guilt onto someone else. Jesus is an innocent person, and he goes to execution willingly, and he stays silent and absorbs their guilt onto him. It's a complete inversion of what happens in almost every other criminal execution that you'll ever see. There's no defiance, there's an acceptance of a wrongfully placed guilt, and there's a willingness to sacrifice himself. That is what's so shocking about the silence of the Lamb. It's so strange. There's absolutely no question that he's in control of this situation. And by simply speaking, he could demonstrate his innocence. And he doesn't. There's no sense of a miscarriage of justice here. This is a, although there is, but it's not an accident. This is a deliberate intended act from Jesus to absorb the guilt of others onto himself. So this Calvary cries silence. It cries deliberateness. It cries an absolutely bizarre emptiness. No speech, no response, nothing. And that's where we start in this chapter. As we progress through into verses 6 to 15, we'll find that Calvary then cries substitution. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who'd committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, ''Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews?'' Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. I don't know what you make of Barabbas, but Mark is obviously quite interested in him. Mark has told about a quarter of this chapter he's spent talking about this man. We don't know anything about him except what we're told in this passage and the parallels. We've never heard of him before. We'll never hear of him again. We don't know if he became a believer or not. We just don't know. But Mark is really interested in this guy, and this story, and in a strange way, because you and I, I think, if we were writing a story about the cross, might focus on its substitutionary significance. We might focus on his atoning sacrifice for our sins. We might, focus, we might write before the throne of God above. So look at the significance of this. It's not just a man being killed in a horrible way. This is the, the redemption of the world. Let's write it down and let's make sure everyone gets that point. And Mark doesn't do that. Instead... He spends a quarter of his verses in this chapter describing Barabbas. And I think he does that because he wants us to see that even in apparently random historical details, Calvary cries substitution. He wants us to see that embodied in this man, I believe. That's why this figure is so important to Mark in his telling of the story. Because this man Barabbas is guilty of everything Jesus is accused of. And here we need to overturn a common Christian myth i think which is that jesus was crucified in between two thieves which is often believed so you have jesus in the middle and next to him you have the artful dodger number one and over here you have artful dodger number two and they're basically pickpockets they're kind of the geezers they walk around just you know just nicking a bit of money and then pocketing it and off they go and they get crucified for it but that's not what the men on either side of jesus or this man barabbas were charged with because that, that's kind of come in because it does say robber in some english translations and robber of course to us might sound like it's the same as thief although it implies much more violence than that but actually originally this this word was somebody who might well have uh, might well have violently attacked people and stolen their possessions but primarily it's a word that you'd use of a brigand a highwayman an outlaw or or an insurrectionary somebody who's basically an upriser against the government and barabbas is clearly identified that way so barabbas this word is used of barabbas as well as the two people who died either side of jesus so we have four people up for up for sentencing this on this particular day in jerusalem so it's a busy day for the crucifiers in jerusalem and there's four people charged with the same crime which is of being a, the Greek word Lestes, a, a brigand, an insurrectionary. Somebody who, by the way they've behaved, has attempted to challenge the authority of Rome. You've got four guys up on that charge. You have Jesus of Nazareth, who is charged with being a brigand, trying to overthrow Rome, because he's spoken against the temple, and he's said that he's a king. And the Romans don't like that. And the Jews are trying to get rid of him. Then you have the two brigands on either side of Jesus, same word used of them. And then you have Barabbas, this fourth man, who doesn't end up getting sentenced. But he also is somebody who, as we've just read, committed murder in an insurrection or an uprising, a, a revolution. So these four are effectively all being crucified or planned to be crucified for revolutionary behaviour, for sedition. It's the kind of thing that were gaddafi to hold on to power in libya were he to have been you know in the last two months to have gone differently and for him to have captured the leaders of the rebels he would have killed them and he would have killed them in the same kind of way as the romans were trying to kill jesus and barabbas and these other two men now the reason that's important is because when you see jesus and barabbas next to each other it helps us see that they're both up on the same charge And so it means that the the pilot is, for instance, turning and saying, there's two people here who are nominally guilty of the same thing, which is insurrection, trying to overthrow the government. Which one do you want me to release? Now, that's important because it helps us see that Barabbas was guilty of that which Jesus was accused of and yet didn't do. And Jesus was innocent of that which Barabbas was accused of and did do. In other words, the two, both accused for the same thing. One's guilty, one's innocent. But other than that, the same allegation is made against them both. That's significant to start with, because that helps us see a substitution thing going on as we will follow through the story. Next thing is important to note is that Barabbas' name means son of the father, which is kind of ironic in the context of that he's up against Jesus. Bar means son, bar mitzvah, you know, we, we, use the, we use the word a lot, probably familiar with a bar as a Jewish or Aramaic word for son. Abba, again, many of us will know the Jewish Aramaic word for father. So Barabbas means son of the father, and he's up against the man who claims to be the son of the heavenly father. So we have two, if you like, random historical details that help us see that these two men are intended to be seen in parallel in some way. But Jesus, innocent of the crimes Barabbas is accused of committing and has committed, takes his place. He stands in the way, and Barabbas is then acquitted despite being completely guilty and knowing that he is. And I think Mark's written the story that way. And I think God ordained history that way to help us see ourselves in this man. I think he's written it that way so that we can look at this man Barabbas. I think God knew that it would be difficult for us to grasp the concept of substitutionary atonement. And I actually agree with Andy's commendation, The Cross of Christ. What an outstanding book at pushing home the point of substitutionary atonement. This is this just an outstanding argument about something that has been much debated in the last ten years. And Stott makes the case brilliantly. And so substitutionary atonement is, is uh, but it's a difficult idea to grasp. And so I think God ordained this man and this historical setup in order to drive home the point that somebody has died for you and been taken all the guilt that you deserved and that you then go with all the innocence that he he deserved. And I think God's ordained it that way, and Mark's written it that way to help us see that Calvary cries substitution. So you imagine what happens Barabbas knows he's guilty. He's guilty of sin. He's in a jail of some sort. Think the life of Brian if it helps you, I don't know. And then he gets let out of the jail and is wheeled out to be presented before Pilate. And Pilate says, Who do you want me to? And Barabbas knows what crucifixion is, he knows how disgustingly violent and horrible it is he knows that it can take days to die in absolutely sickening agony and he knows that he is deservedly he's been caught from the moment he was captured by presumably roman soldiers with spears and swords he knew that he was going to be subjected to an excruciating death and barabbas has been thinking about this and sweating about it and having nightmares about it for days and then he gets wheeled out And presented before the crowd, do you want me to release this man or the one you call the king of the Jews? And Barabbas may or may not know, but Jesus is innocent of this. And as soon as he finds that out, Barabbas thinks, I'm a goner. I'm uh, being up against Jesus. That's absurd. This guy's done nothing wrong. And so Barabbas is faced with the possibility of this incredibly painful death. And as he sees this other man step forward and say nothing in his own defence, Barabbas becomes amazed as the crowd begin to swing against Jesus and for him. And he begins to see that he's going to be acquitted of crimes he knows he's guilty of because somebody else is going to take the punishment for him. Someone's going to substitute for him. And I think he would have looked sideways and thought, what is wrong with you? I mean, I'm, fa- I'm grateful, but why are you doing this? What is in your mind that you would voluntarily, despite being innocent, go through that suffering to liberate me? And at the end of this process, of course, Pilate then says, but who do you want? What about the king of the Jews? They say, crucify him. Jesus is led away, and Barabbas gets to go free. Barabbas just gets to wander off down the street. Buy a falafel, I don't know, whatever they used to do back then. I don't know, do, I wonder what he did next. I wonder, he's no longer in jail, his, his chains are gone, he's been set free. He's been ransomed. Literally. And I wonder if he stayed. I've often thought that. I, what, did he stay? Did Barabbas, just imagine him. You, what would you do next? You might think, what, what is with this man? I want to find out what's gone on here. And I wonder if Barabbas stayed and watched as Jesus was flogged. And with every lash of the whip, if he thought that one was mine, like I can see his back being ripped in shreds, and but that's what's supposed to be happening to my back right now that's what i'd have thought that would have gone through my head if i wonder if as he carried the carried the beam up the hill and splinters went into jesus shoulders i wonder if he thought that splinter ought to be in here not in there this guy's done nothing he's substituted for me he's innocent of everything of which i'm guilty why why is he carrying that punishment instead of me i wonder if as he approached the the cross and was nailed in with each nail thought that one was for me And I think as we look at Barabbas, and as we see that story unfold, I think we can stand ourselves in Barabbas' shoes and think, I'm guilty of everything of which Jesus is innocent. Jesus is accused, is carrying the guilt of everything that I have done wrong. And he's doing it voluntarily, despite being innocent. And as I see the crowd take him away, shout crucify him, I know that I no longer get crucified. My jail cell is open. I can wander off down the street and buy a falafel and observe and look at this man and think, what is with that guy? Why would anybody go through that for me? Calvary cries, substitution, substitution. He acts as a substitute, Jesus, receiving the punishment for everything that Barabbas deserved. And as we look at Barabbas and see ourselves in him, we can see something like an almost real-life object lesson of what it means for Jesus to be our substitute. You and I, like we are Barabbas, aren't we? And as we get to go free, I think to myself, what kind of man would do that? Calvary cries substitution. Third thing, Calvary cries savagery. Mark 15, again, we we'll read from the middle of verse 15 to 24. Pilate released from the Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. and they compelled a passer by simon of cyrene who was coming in from the country the father of alexander and rufus to carry his cross and they brought him to the place called golgotha which means place of a skull and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he didn't take it and they crucified him <coughs> calvary cries savagery now we won't dwell on this one excessively Because the New Testament writers don't, to be honest, they don't go through graphic descriptions of crucifixion. Although I think probably partly that was because everyone in their world knew what it was, but they don't make a huge deal out of it. That it's—I think it's worth being aware that what Jesus experienced is about as physically brutal a death as anybody has ever experienced. And I would only—that's—that's for me significant in a funny way, which not a funny ha ha way at all, but in a strange way because I think if I was God. I would, and I knew I had to die for the sins of the world, I would arrange to die at a time when they didn't kill people like this. I'd come to redeem the world when we had such things as political liberalism, and some sense of, even, where some sense of humanitarian goodwill existed in society as a whole, and so I'd probably come in the 21st century and think, actually, the way we kill people now, which, whether you agree with it or not, is much more humane than it was back then and i'd arrange to do that i think 21st century here we go i won't even know anything about it perhaps perhaps if i land in the right state of america at the right time this will never be a problem but jesus didn't he decided to go at a time when it was so brutal so offensive that people didn't even talk about it in public roman citizens couldn't be wouldn't be crucified it was too obscene so we don't crucify romans this is only for the slaves and the absolute damage we don't crucify women. It's too offensive to crucify women in this culture. You don't even mention this word, Stauros, in conversation. It's too offensive. It's too jarring. It's the kind of thing that people don't... Roman, Good Romans, middle-class Romans, people like us, people in Sussex, which we, we don't even... I know it happened somewhere at the corner of the empire, but we don't want to know. Verse 15 says he was scourged, which means that they strung him up on a pole just above the ground, probably, so that his back was stretched out. And then they took a a whip made with leather, and then they had lead or bone or maybe glass embedded in the end of it. And they basically ripped his back to pieces. And again, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you'll know all about that. And it's just vile. Josephus, a first century historian, said that it reports people being flogged until their entrails were visible. It's profoundly unpleasant, I think you'll agree. Some of them died from that alone. This is savage. That's the only point I want to make about this at the moment. This was savage. They then gather the whole battalion. So if the scourging isn't enough, they get the whole battalion of soldiers round, and they're all allowed to do their worst. Now, we've seen, even in recent years, what happens when a group of soldiers get carried away when they don't think anyone's going to catch them for what they're doing. And that's even in, again, a modern, relatively liberal kind of secular state, where you do believe that people have endemic rights, and in this, world, well, they didn't. This guy was being treated as a slave. He was a political prisoner. None of those constraints existed. And they beat him black and blue. They marred him beyond human appearance, as, I, as Isaiah puts it. They beat him with a, a reed or a staff. You can't really tell. But anyway, some, something chunky that means his face is so swelled up, he would have looked like the elephant man. You wouldn't have been able to tell who he was. You'd see him walking through the campsite. And you think, I don't, is that him? Or that? I mean, he's kind of similar height, but other than that, totally disfigured savage they then press a crown of thorns into his skull and the result of all of this is that jesus is so weak he can't physically carry the cross beam himself so they have to get help on arrival at the hill of the skull golgotha because it's a skull-like shape of a hill he's then offered wine mixed with myrrh like a heavy sedative like basically saying Can we just dope you during this period? Because this is just... uh, We don't know. Maybe he's one of the women who was following him. Maybe stretched out and tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. That's different, by the way, from the sour wine later. But at this point, he's offered wine mixed with myrrh, which is a, a heavy sedative, really. Um and you just think okay maybe he will take this maybe he will escape the savagery that way and almost pass out but he doesn't he refuses to drink it he is prepared to drink in full the cup that the father has prepared for him on our behalf as a substitute and then mark says simply and they crucified him they put a nail through here and a nail through here and probably crossed over his legs and a nail through the ankles and they left him up there to die and we know how that works and again for many years people didn't even believe that the romans crucified people in this part of the world in that period and then in 1968 israeli scholars found evidence of crucifixions taking place in northwest jerusalem and said this is what they did this is how they killed people and it was the most vile way of doing it and jesus takes all of that calvary cries savagery it says something quite bleak and disgusting to us about the nature of human sin and about the love that god has for us and i don't i i know that the redemption comes through the blood of jesus through the through the death of jesus i know that the death of christ and not the pain he went through is the primary thing which saves but I have to wonder why go to all of that length. Why experience such savage torment in the process? And I'm not sure that it's because no other kind of death could have satisfied the justice of God. But I do think what happens when you stand and look at the cross is you see love that is unspeakable. You see the offense of human sin that cannot be expressed and for which nothing could be too vile a punishment. Because of the bleakness of what we've done in rebelling against God. And we see love in the eyes, in the, in the cries, in the Father forgive them, in the, my son, my brother, would you behold your mother? Would you take her into your home? Thinking of others as he's dying, I, as you see those and hear those comments and see the eyes and see everything else, I think something about it says something about the love of God that we would never have discerned if Jesus had died by lethal injection or hanging. I think there's a bleakness and a savagery to the cross that is intended to awaken us to the blackness of our sin and the beauty of the love of the God who rescued us from it. Calvary cries, savagery. Let's read on. We've got two more to go. Calvary cries, shame. Mark fifteen twenty four to 32. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, nine in the morning... And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers. Well, you see, that's that's the word. Robbers, lestes, brigands, bandits. Two of these outlaws or insurrectionaries. Two of them on either side. One on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others can't save himself let the christ the king of israel come down now from the cross so we may believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him calvary cries shame and the idea of god being shamed is unthinkably baffling and so hard to get your head around how God, seated in the position of the highest honour, could experience shame at all, let alone this measure, is unthinkable. It's so hard to understand. The signs of shame in the story are everywhere. So, Jesus has already been stripped. So, no loincloths, so trust me, know that. No loincloths, completely naked. He's been beaten and he's been spat upon. And again, you know that, I mean, Spitting in our culture is—I think—it's an unpleasant thing that people, you know, teenagers do by the side of the road. But it's—it's it's not very nice. But it's, it doesn't connote shame in the way that it does in most Eastern cultures. But do you remember, you know, a, a few years ago there was in one of the—I think Euro '96 one guy spat on another guy and they both got into this massive fight and uh, the whole team got dragged in, two people got red carded because of, a, because of spitting. Because actually in a lot of cultures, spitting connotes much more than simply just, oh yeah, I just had a bit too much liquid in my mouth. And so they spit, and it, that is one of the most shameful things you can do. And so Jesus has been spat upon, which would have meant more to the readers of this than it often does to us. Then he's strung up naked on a cross and left to die. He suffers the indignity then of people, what he's watching, presumably. He's up there trying to, keep breathing and avoid being suffocated to death and as he's looking down he sees people playing games for his clothes god's clothes you know god had god had a pair of clothes i said a clothes that day and so there's two there's his outer garment which they say well let's just rip that okay you get that they divide his clothes but then the undergarment the chiton the 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 kind of one seamless garment that they have underneath they say well that's just too valuable we're not going to rip that in pieces why don't we play dice for it and he has to watch people play and say one guy goes home that day with god's clothes what happened to you today dear oh it's great we're not this guy up on the cross and i came home with god's clothes so unthinkable isn't it as he wanders off carrying the clothes of the living god that he doesn't even realize and then he's mocked by the romans and then he's mocked by random passers-by going ha look at him what a spectacle. What an You think you're the king of the Jews. Well, look at you. You don't look much of a king now. And you can see why. Because crucifixion for the Romans was the demonstration that they were in charge. That's why you did it. Who's seen Spartacus? goodness a good a healthy number mostly though over 40 that's disappointing the younger half of the room you need to see spartacus and and the older half of the room you need to see 24 and if you've seen both then you're fine but anyway so spartacus um you know at the end of spartacus they just crucify loads and loads of people as a slave revolt because that's what the romans did if the romans wanted to demonstrate that they were in charge and that others were not they crucified people they said this will make the point pretty powerfully this is the demonstration we have that we are in charge and you are not it is the cross it became a symbol of roman might and power so you would drive in or drive in probably wouldn't ride in or walk in (laughs) to ancient cities and you would see crosses lining the streets just to say romans are in charge around here and if you think that you might be able to overthrow the romans maybe you'd like to give it a try but you'll end up like this and people looked at the crucified people dying in agony over two or three days and thought that doesn't look like much fun to me i'll keep myself to myself thank you that's what the cross meant So to put king of the Jews above, in the titulus, above his head, was the most ironic thing you could say. say. This is the demonstration that the real king of the Jews is not this guy, any more than it's the two guys either side of him. The real king of the Jews is Caesar. He is the king of the Jews, he's the ruler. And if you think that you are the king of the Jews, and you've got something better than Caesar to go, then you're going to end up with one of these signs above your head as well, and you're going to end up dying in agony so it was a deliberate slap in the face it wasn't just us it's not just the irony that we can see as we read it as christians saying wow that was true it was a deliberate irony even when he did it so it's like a double irony Pilate says <laughs> it and we then look at what he meant as a joke and realize it's actually true similarly when they say he saved others the jewish people mock him as well they say he saved others he can't save himself again for them that's ironic they're looking at the cross <laughs> very ironic he saved others but he can't save himself <laughs> and as we hear that statement we see the double irony again and say that's true it is in the very fact that he saved others that he couldn't save himself because if he'd saved himself and got off off the cross and said i'm not going to drink the father's cup of wrath i'm not going to die for the sins of the world I, they can all go to hell in a handbasket so far as i care in saving himself he couldn't have saved you so the chief priests as they speak better than they know mock him and say save others can't save himself at that level mark is writing it down saying this was true they were right they said so much better than they knew he in not saving himself liberated everybody but if he tried to save himself he would have liberated nobody so many ironies in this story and then the shame of the cross of course underneath all of that all of the shaming that he's experiencing the most shameful thing of all is that he dies on a cross at all because to the romans as i said that meant that they were in charge caesar was king jesus was not but in yet another irony of the story it turns out to mean jesus is king caesar is not and nowadays we i don't know we name and there's probably millions of little boys in the world called jesus or joshua or yeshua or some equivalent of them There's many, many people in this room, I'm sure, named after his disciples and his followers and the people who... There's a lot of... I think everybody on the stage here today was called Chris, (laughs) named after the the Christ, Christopher, friend of God. And as you went through, you just think, wow, friend of Christ, Jesus, Saviour. We call our sons after Jesus. We name our dogs and our dog food, Nero and Caesar. You (laughs) notice that, don't you? (laughs) We do. We, We name our children after jesus and we name our dog food after caesar it was so, it's another irony i'm not saying that mark was aware of that point <laughs> anybody here do you, do you use caesar dog food anybody i mean i know they dropped the a out for some reason but it's the same and you just think how the mighty have fallen how the tables have turned how it is that now we divide the centuries over the existence of this man and no one even knows the name of this caesar who was alive then apart from ancient historians but yet we divide the centuries every time you write the date you are acknowledging that history revolves around this man who was killed allegedly as a political prisoner saying king of the jews and now you say it's funny 2011 years after what it's not after caesar you just think the ironies that of the shaming that went on jesus's head all of which became undone as he was raised to the position of highest honor and given the name that's above every name that was the Romans' response. They thought, this means this guy's not the king our king is. And they were wrong. The Jews similarly misread the shame. They said, this man is cursed by God because Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, you're cursed if you're hung on a tree but of course they were right as well yet another irony in the story I feel like a broken record here but deuteronomy 21:23 says cursed is he who's hung upon a tree the jews said he's cursed by god therefore he can't be the messiah the christian said he is the messiah and he's hung on a tree therefore he was cursed by god for us the son of god became a curse for us so that we might become the righteousness of god so line after line after line in this story tells us of shaming that took place at Calvary that was undone in the resurrection. And as that happened, we were able to see, wow, where we thought he was at his lowest point was actually his highest place of victory. And he who be- took on the very form of a slave made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, slave, bond servant. God has exalted him and given him the name above every name. Calvary cries Shame. Finally, Calvary cries, slightly surprisingly, Scripture. This is a strange one. Let's read this. When the sixth hour had come, this is verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, so twelve o'clock, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, three o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying wait let's see whether elijah will come to take him down and jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last he said truly this man was the son of god calvary christ scripture It might seem like an odd place to end think this is the death of jesus why does calvary cross scripture but the new testament writers and not least mark make it really clear here that the cross of jesus is the fulfillment of the biblical story it's the place to which all of the r- threads of biblical narrative that we didn't see resolving suddenly come together and get sorted out it's the place where for instance the the problem of evil which began in the garden in genesis 3 gets resolved but people have for a long time been saying, how is it that this snake is going to be crushed? This serpent representing Satan and all his powers. How is evil going to be stamped on the head of? That's awful grammar, but you know, how is that going to happen? And they would just wait and think, what's going to happen? And then Jesus, halfway through John's Gospel, says, I tell you, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, So the Son of Man must be lifted up so that men might look to him and have life. And then at the end of the Gospel, he's strung up on a cross, high and lifted up, and people look to him and have life. So the cross becomes the the solution to that problem. How's the snake going to get undone? The cross becomes the moment when Jesus, the seed of Abraham, and the true Israel, makes a way for all nations to be blessed. Paul says Christ became a servant to the... the circumcised, in order that the gentiles might glorify god for his mercy and so that he could fulfill the promises to the patriarchs so jesus on the cross is saying all of those promises that god made abraham they're now kept i have made it possible for the nations to be blessed through israel and abraham's seed this is the moment when the temple curtain again the temple story just in the temple curtain being torn into that's another fulfillment of a biblical puzzle where people thinking but god is in behind there and I'm out here and no amount of my excellence or standards or even sacrificial offerings can qualify any of us except one man once a year to get there how is that dynamic going to be resolved and again the temple curtains torn into the presence of god comes out into the world the people of god are able to go into god's presence so there's all kinds of spiritual and you know kind of biblical perspectives that mingle together in this story that show that calvary is the fulfillment of the scriptures but in mark's story there's one scripture that stands high above all the rest and i'm going to read it now because it's the song of david which jesus quotes at the beginning my god my god why have you forsaken me jesus quotes from the beginning of a very well-known jewish song written by the jewish king david messiah so he or the, the the one who was prefiguring the messiah so jesus in quoting this is saying i am david i am the one of whom david spoke And I want to, as I read it, I just want you to remember that at the time David wrote this, I mean, sorry, at the time Jesus fulfilled this, we have seen people shout, Aha! He could save others, he couldn't save himself. They've jeered him, they've mocked him, they've divided his clothes, they've pierced his hands and his feet, they've stuck nails through both. And, And then I want you to remember that when David wrote this, it was 500 years before crucifixion even existed. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians about five centuries after this psalm was written. With all of that in mind, and I'm just going to the band will come up in just a moment. In fact, Chris, you want to bring the guys out while I'm reading this, and we'll just just sing and respond and reflect on the cross. But this is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? My God, I I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest all who see me verse 7 mock me they make mouths at me they wag their heads he trusts in the lord let him deliver him let him rescue him for he delights in him be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. 500 years before crucifixion, no one ever did that. It blows your mind i can count my bones they stare and gloat over me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots a thousand years before this happened but you O lord don't be far off O you my help come quickly to my aid save me from the mouth of the lion and then we just go down to verse 27 all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the lord when david wrote this he i don't know if he knew that there was a place such as plumpton i doubt he did But what he's prophesying is in consequence of this moment, of this sacrifice, of this piercing of the hands and the feet, and all the rest of it i talk about, all the ends of the earth in fields, in countries we haven't even heard of, will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him. It should be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it they shall come and tell people who haven't been born yet that god in this servant has done it or that it is finished father we want to thank you for the cross we thank you for the cries of calvary we thank you for what you accomplished. we thank you for your love we thank you for this astonishing substitutionary sacrifice god please lift our hearts to see the love of god for sinners like us the grace of god extended over all sins that we've committed the impossibility of out out sinning a god who has grace like that lord god your sovereign power in ordaining that all of these things come about in fulfillment with the scriptures we are so grateful to you for calvary amen